the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. And we gather like this every weekend and always very pleased when you join us. Alan Dempsey once again does the engineering. Andrew Herdliska is our producer. And Rod Gregg is with us in this first half hour. Uh, he is a uh, director for military veteran studies at Coastal Carolina University, prolific author, pro, a prolific historian, and his new book is out. It's called My Brother's Keeper. Well, Rod, we hook up again. I'm so happy to plug in with you here, and I hope you're doing well. I am, Pat. It's always good to talk to you. Tell me about this new book with uh, Center Street, Hachette Book Group. Uh, fill me in on it, please. Well, it's uh, entitled My Brother's Keeper, Christians Who Risk All to Protect Jewish Targets of the Nazi Holocaust. And it uh, contains uh, the stories of 30 individuals or families who, um, motivated by their faith, chose to uh, put themselves at risk to try to protect um, Jewish targets of the Nazi Holocaust uh, during that really dark era. And uh, it's it's uh, really more than a just a collection of stories because it it follows the history of the Holocaust and World War II in Europe as uh, those events unfold from country to country, and so the reader is introduced in that setting to these extraordinary people who um, uh, found the uh, found it uh, themselves in a position where they had to make a choice to. Um, to help those in need, and, and they all did so. So, um, to me, it's a remarkable history and um, very inspirational. Rod, will we ever have an adequate explanation for the Holocaust? Well, I mean, how can you explain that? And as you, if you really spend time in the primary sources, which you really can't put into a book, it would be just too much for anybody to really read. Uh, if you if you really put the full details there, you just you're just amazed at that um, horror that occurred. But in in um, in this time, uh, the source of the primary source or the starting point, I guess, for this book is um, the archives of Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And there, they have what is called the Righteous Among the Nation, and that is. Um, an archive of um, uh, numerous people who were not Jewish, but who chose to put themselves at risk to try to protect the Jewish people, and they became honored by the state of Israel as the righteous among the nation. And um, this book is about uh, 30 of those people who were Christians, who um, they range from the nominal to the devout, who um, were willing to... Uh, put themselves at risk, and following uh, the words of Jesus, uh, greater love hath no man than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So, Rod, you went to Jerusalem and into those files, and that's how you came up with these 30 people? Well, that's the starting point, and, and today you don't have to travel like you used to to do that kind of history. There's so much of it that you can find uh available on, on uh, archived uh, sources online. But yes, Yad Vashem is, is the starting point, and then lots of other primary sources, secondary sources, first-person accounts, uh, diary entries uh, of, of people. Of course, I scoured through over, I don't know, hundreds, uh, several hundred at least, 
to uh, to pick these thirty, and they are really a remarkable uh, group of people, and they they uh, a great deal of variety in mm-hmm. there, and they uh, they range from a Chinese diplomat to uh, a homemaker, a thirteen year old girl, a British spy, uh, a, a royal princess, uh, a Polish farm family, people in the Ukraine, an orphanage uh, director in the in uh, Belarusia, uh, just so many people in it. Their stories unfold as you follow the Holocaust through this book unfolding. Uh, but each chapter is built around uh, these people and their uh, remarkable decisions to uh, reach out and put themselves at risk to help the Jewish people as they were being targeted by the Holocaust. Were these people putting their life at risk? Oh, yes, and and, uh, and quite a few of them gave up their lives. And, and, and really, um, just like I say, a remarkable um, variety in here. There's um, Fang Shang Ho who was a Chinese diplomat in Austria when it was taken over by Nazi Germany in 1938, Hitler's first big takeover as he uh, enfolded Austria into what he called Greater Germany. And he was um, uh, in the the head of the Chinese diplomatic corps in Vienna, and when he saw the, the Jews being persecuted, he began to try to issue visas to them to uh, get out of the country and escape. And at that time... If you could get a visa, you could get out. You had to leave all your assets behind, uh, but it was hard to get them. And the, the beginning of the Holocaust, they were being rounded up and, and amid all this persecution and, and uh, placed in uh, the early concentration camps. But over the course of two years, under the scrutiny of the Nazis and his own government, who uh, didn't approve of this, he managed to save more than 12,000 Jewish people in Austria. Mm. So that's a, a big number. And then you've got on the other extreme... Uh, Anna Ann, who was a 13-year-old girl who met a, another 13-year-old, a Jewish teenage girl, on the street while she was on her way to church, and the girl was begging for food, and she gave her some, and the two like teenagers developed a friendship immediately, and she met this girl every day, bringing her food, and at one point, she actually, or the, the girl's oldest sister, the, uh, the family were uh, laborers, forced laborers who were brought into town to clean rubble from the Allied bombing uh, before they were being sent to a death camp. And uh, the Jewish girl's older sister was injured and taken to an SS hospital. And the SS, or Schutzstaffel, Hitler's elite guard, black uniform, skull and crossbones insignia, they were the enforcers of the Holocaust. And uh, this 13-year-old girl walked into this hospital and asked for permission to have this older girl discharged into her care. Uh, before she could be found out that she was Jewish, and uh, and she got her and took her out, and so just a remarkable act. And then later she came to meet her 13 year old friend on the street, and she was gone, and she mm. had been sent to a death camp. And so you've got you know from a, a diplomat that saves 12,000 to a 13 year old girl who for a period of time helped a couple of people who were suffering. And then in in the midst of that, you've got folks like. Um, Heinrich Gruber, who was an evangelical pastor in Berlin, had friends in the Jewish community and helped them in the beginning of the Holocaust and eventually developed a a chain of offices across Germany trying to help the Jewish people as they went underwent persecution. He eventually was uh, arrested and put in Dachau concentration camp himself, had a heart attack and and passed out and is was thrown onto the day's pile of dead because mm. they thought he was dead, and he recovered lying in the midst of this huge pile of bodies and uh, uh, eventually uh, miraculously got out of Dachau. But he had the extraordinary experience of having to work on a day-to-day basis representing the Jews to Adolf Eichmann, who was um, the, one of the key architects of the Holocaust. And at one time he actually... Um, got to a point where uh, Eichmann looked at him and said, why do you care? Why do you care about these Jews? And uh, Gruber then explained his faith, that as a Christian, that he had surrendered his life to a Jewish Savior, Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ. And for one time, um, Eichmann didn't have anything to say. Mm. Uh, There's also the story of, um, I think one of the most remarkable stories is um, a German 
uh, officer in the Wehrmacht, which was the regular German army. His name was Max Leidke. He was middle-aged. He'd been a newspaper editor, opposed the Nazis, and was forced out of his job. He was a veteran, and so he was put in the army. And he found himself, after the invasion of Poland, in command of a German garrison in a Polish city where there was a large ghetto of Jewish inhabitants that had been forced in this, these neighborhoods that the Nazis called ghettos. Right, hold and your, he hold. learned that the SS had sent a column to round up these thousands of Jews to take them to death camps, and so he barricaded a bridge leading into the city. Hold your thoughts, Rod. Had to use. We'll be right back, Rod. Okay. Hold your thoughts. Uh, it's right. the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Rod Gregg is our guest. We're talking about his book, My Brother's Keeper. Uh, more after this. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Are you in pain after a recent fall or car accident? Hi, this is Dr. Esther Pichardo. If you're in pain right now, dial pound 250 on your mobile device and say, I'm in pain. That will connect you to advanced physical medicine. After a car accident, your work the insurance, the loss of your car, everything is a concern and your life changes in a matter of seconds. Material things can be replaced, but your health cannot be. If you're in pain right now, dial pound 250 on your mobile device and say, I'm in pain. Even if the pain is not severe in the first few days after an accident, studies show that physical injuries can get worse with time. If you had an accident and you're still in pain, dial pound 250 on your mobile device and say, I'm in pain. That will connect you to advanced physical medicine with offices in Orlando, Hunters Creek, and Poinciana. Advanced Physical Medicine. If you are in pain, dial pound 250 on your mobile device and say, I'm in pain. Think about your floors. Are they worn out, stained, or dated? Now think about new floors that are fresh, updated, and look great. Whether you like the feel or soft carpet between your toes or the gleam of freshly polished hardwood, now is the time to buy half-price flooring vouchers. For a limited time, we have vouchers to make that floor remodel easier. Don't wait. Go to AmazingRadioDeals.com slash half-price flooring. That's AmazingRadioDeals.com slash half-price flooring. Plus, vouchers are a great way to use your tax refund. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your host, Dr. Daniel Forbes and attorney Delta Chen. Families by Design airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Veteran historian, the author of many fascinating books about the Civil War period and the Revolutionary War period and World War II. We're talking about my brother's keeper. Uh, This is the untold stories of Christians who risked their all to protect Jewish targets of the Nazi Holocaust. So, Rod, I want you to pick up where you left off on Max Leitke. Right, middle-aged German officer in the Wehrmacht, the regular German army. Many of the troops in the Wehrmacht um, were complicit and involved in the Holocaust, but there were a few, some, who um, didn't like it and resisted it. And two of their stories are in this book, and one of them, Max Leitke, was a major in the Wehrmacht, and he didn't like the Nazis, and he was posted to um, command of a German garrison in Poland and learned that the SS, uh, the enforcers of the Holocaust, were sending a column to round up the Jews in a neighboring ghetto, and he barricaded a bridge leading into the city and put machine guns on it. And when the SS showed up, he uh, refused to let them through, and they the SS uh, commander came out and told him he was going to force his way through, and he said, if you do, we'll open fire with this machine gun. And so the SS officer backed down for the time and, and uh, left. Now, he came back later after uh, after he'd gone all the way up to the uh, the high command, almost to Hitler himself, and uh, the Jews were rounded up, and uh, Major Leitke paid a heavy price, but it's the, it's the only time that I know of that... Um, uh, an officer in the regular German army um, 
stood up face to face and backed down the SS in, on behalf of, of Jewish people. Tell me about the Ten Boom family. Well, there are uh, a few people in this book that are probably familiar to readers. Uh, most of them would not be. Most of them are stories that are kind of um, hidden away and brought out from uh, from the archives here. But the Ten Boom family, people are familiar with Corey Ten Boom and the book, the autobiographical book that she wrote in, in uh, the 60s and 70s called The Hiding Place, which was made into a, a superb motion picture. Uh, the Ten Boom family were in Harlem in Holland outside of uh, Amsterdam, and they had long had hearts for the Jewish people. Uh, they were uh, Dutch Reformed Evangelical Christians. And uh, Corey, uh, the book, the entry here is about the ten, entire family. Casper uh, Ten Boom was the head of the, the family. He was in his 80s. But they, um, they hid Jews. They were active in the Dutch resistance, and then they were um, found out. And uh, they were um, rounded up, and uh, eventually Casper uh, Ten Boom, because of his age and frailty, died pretty quickly in captivity. Corey and her sister were put into Ravensbrook, which was a horrible concentration camp, and, and other places, and her sister died. Uh, Corey survived uh, and extraordinarily um, was one day just suddenly released. Um, and she found out later that uh, within a few days, everybody in her cell block was gassed to death. But mm. uh, she had been released on what appeared to be an ex- uh, an accident with a with her uh, number. But she survived to to, um, to tell the story and, and an extraordinary um, story of uh, heart for the Jewish people and a willingness to risk their lives to um, to try to save them. And there's of course a a, a famous quote. From her father, who died in captivity, Casper Ten Boom, uh, who who said uh, it would be an honor for me to give my life for God's ancient people, and he really, I think, represents the the heart of so many people that are in this book. Uh, what can you tell me about the uh, family of Anne Frank, and and why she is such a well superstar young lady, right? Right. Uh, well, Anne, Anne Frank uh, lived in Amsterdam, and her um, her, her father was in, involved in um, uh, merchandising, wholesaling, and retailing. And um, eventually, uh, when the, the Nazis uh, took over Holland, she, like so many other Jews, had to go into hiding with her family and uh, live for a long time, a long period of time, escaped captivity. And then eventually, the whole family was discovered, and they were they were sent to um, concentration camps and uh, where she died and, and her father survived and came back to the, to the place where they were in hiding, which had been a, 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 a storehouse, a warehouse type of place. And he found her diary. And that diary, of course, has become famous uh, you know, since then, a generation of people who uh, grew up reading Anne Frank's diary. And so it's really a, one of the books that that's really on a personal level I think uh, instructive about what it was like to try to live through the Holocaust if you're Jewish and I'd say in the, in this book my brother's keeper which is about again Christians who risk everything they had in their lives and gave them up in many cases to protect Jewish people during the Holocaust in this book you see just extraordinary um, acts of grace and acts of courage by these uh, Christians and trying to save the, the Jews. But you also see uh, just remarkable courage by the Jewish people also uh, depicted in this book. Could and should the United States have done more? Well, that has since then been a great controversy because in the very beginning, um, there were, was early on, there were, was an opportunity for um, Jewish people to be taken in by the West, children in particular. And um, um, but there were a lot of reasons why the, the West generally didn't, including the United States. Britain took in some, and um, Holland took in some temporarily. The um, and then uh, there, one of the stories in this book is about Jan Karski, who was a Polish military officer who was caught up in the invasion of Poland. Nazi Germany and, and Soviet Union made a pact, and they divided up Poland invaded in 1939, and the Poles thought the Russians were their friends, and they were 
The Germans, of course, raced across Poland and just great loss of life and destruction. And then from the other side, they were hit by the, the Soviets who had um, you know, double-crossed them and joined the Nazis. But um, <clears throat> Jan uh, Karski survived, and he uh, was taken by Jewish leaders to uh, a um, concentration camp and an assembly area, and he saw firsthand what was happening to the Jewish people, and he was part of the Polish resistance. And he managed to get out of Poland because he wanted to take a message to uh, England and to America of what was happening. And he um, did so, but um, he um, found that he just didn't seem to get traction in England. And he made his way to America, and actually all the way up till he was in a meeting with President Franklin Roosevelt in the White House. And he left there very uh, discouraged because he felt like that he just couldn't get anybody to react to what was going on. And the problem was that... The Holocaust was so horrible that people could not believe that it was really true. Mm. And they believed there had to be gross exaggerations that just couldn't be true. And uh, as it turned out, his efforts were not in vain because they did uh, influence eventually um, members of the Roosevelt administration who did um, take some actions that were important. But I think that's one of the things that you see is that, that there was a great indifference to what was happening to the Jewish people around the world, and uh, particularly in Europe where it took place, but in the West and elsewhere. And then also I think that it was just so simply horrible that people just couldn't believe that it really could be true. Right. As I uh, read about that whole period and uh, study Hitler, uh, the impact he had on his subordinates and how fearful uh, they were of him really seems to be why all this took place to a large degree. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, a fearful and also, uh, at least early on, enthusiastic. And uh, and I think that, um, you know, this, I think one of the lessons um, to me in this book, and as a historian, I look at so much and there's so many things to be learned here, and the history is extraordinary and and gripping, and the sto- the stories here are are inspirational. But I, as a Christian historian, I look at it, and it just is a reminder to me that um, potentially there's so much darkness in the heart of man, and uh, that's why we need a Savior. And that's also uh, why we're kidding ourselves if we think that this kind of thing cannot happen again. Where do you think uh, Hitler's intense hatred of the Jews began? Well, a lot of his biographers have dealt with that in different reasons, but uh, the interesting thing here to me, and one of the stories I found here of of the pastor that I mentioned, Heinrich Gruber, who was forced to spend so much time dealing with the Nazis, and he tried to share his faith with them, and and, uh, some of them actually opened up to him and admitted that he knew what they were doing was horrible, and that they were caught up in it, and they didn't know how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. But others um, were just cold-eyed and steely-hearted, and and uh, people like Eichmann that he uh, that he tried to share his faith with, and he he eventually concluded that they had reached a, a level of a very a word that's very unpopular in the West today, Western culture, and that's sin. But he concluded that they had reached a level of sin where they were on a downward spiral, and the the farther down they went, the more horrible it was. But, you know, it started with this sense of hatred for um, the Jewish people. Rod Gregg is our guest. Rod, is there another um, person here in your book, My Brother's Keeper, that you'd like to tell us about? Well, I, I, there are. Uh, there are a couple of Americans that are in there, as mm-hmm. a matter of fact. Most of these, of course, are Europeans. That's where the Holocaust occurred. But there's a story there of a young woman named Lois Gundon, who was a Mennonite French teacher mm-hmm. from um, a college in Indiana, Mennonite school there. And she took a post in 1941 running a, a convalescent home for refugee children in France after it had been taken over by the Nazis. And uh, she found out that most of the children in her home were Jewish because they were children who had grown ill in a nearby internment camp uh, uh, in France, Riesel Camp, a, a concentration camp. There were several types of concentration camps. There were assembly camps, there were labor camps, and eventually there were death camps. 
And uh, she began to minister to these uh, Jewish children and the families who realized what was happening and that they were going to be shipped off to the death camps. They began to give her their children to try to save them. And so she put them in this home, and then uh, this book records a number of events that occurred in which uh, close calls where she was uh, saving and rescuing dozens of these Jewish children. And eventually uh, she was arrested and interned um, in Germany um, and then swapped out for a German diplomat, and the Nazis shut down the children's home. But the, the children uh, were gotten away. Her colleagues uh, managed to get the children out. Uh, she was an American. There's another American, uh, Sergeant Roddy Edmonds. He was a 25-year-old American uh, non-commissioned officer who was captured by the Germans at the Battle of the Bulge and was imprisoned in a POW camp where he found himself to be the highest-ranking officer. And the, the Nazi commandant ordered him to identify the American Jewish soldiers under his command so they could be removed. He didn't know where they were going, but he knew it had to be bad from the rumors he'd heard. And so uh, he refused, and the commandant ordered all the troops assembled, and they were. And then he stood face-to-face -face with this American, young American sergeant and demanded he turn over the Jews. And very calmly, Sergeant Edmonds looked him in the eye and replied, We are all Jews. Mm. And the, the German officer pulled his sidearm, his pistol, and put it in his face and threatened to kill him. But he was unflinching, and he would not give him the names. And uh, therefore, he saved who knows how many American soldiers who were Jewish from being sent to uh, labor camps where some were taken and worked to death. I've often wondered, Rod, would Hitler's army have done a better job in the in the fighting of the war if they weren't all tied up with murdering Jews? Well, with no question about that, and and, and, and on different many different levels. But also, uh, I mean, on a moral level, a motivational level, and uh, strategically, and, um, uh, and across the board, that's absolutely true. And then at the end, you know, when he realized that, uh, or when not so much Hitler, but the top Nazis realized uh, that things were going against them, then there became this this uh, effort to try to, to kill as many as they could, even faster than they could, to try to hide the evidence. And uh, But eventually, um, I mean, it's like Heinrich Gruber, this evangelical pastor. Uh, he was a World War I veteran of the German army, and when Hitler came to power, at first he supported Hitler because he thought he was a reformer and was going to reform the economy and things, make uh, things better in Germany. And, and then he, began, he saw what Hitler was doing to the Jews, and then he had turned him completely away uh, from that. Rod Gregg has been our guest, the book... My Brother's Keeper. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. So there once was a wee little man who couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd. He found a workaround. He ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore fig tree. Perfect place to see Jesus pass by. So, what's keeping you from Jesus? Too busy? Run ahead of the crowd and find a spot that works. Be proactive. Listen to the Word while driving. Be intentional. Turn to the Word at work. Be smart. Get ahead of the crowd. 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Just like you, I want to be healthy. I, in fact, I take health very seriously, so I do everything I can to keep myself healthy. Now I have found a way to track my health, a way that's easy, portable, and surprisingly thorough. It's called the Body Metrics Performance Monitor, and quite frankly, it's amazing. It's a handheld device about the size of your palm that measures, are you ready, your blood pressure, your blood oxygen level, your temperature, your heart rate, and, most amazingly of all, it even has a built-in EKG. That's right. You can take your own EKG. It does this all in seconds, anywhere, anytime. You pair the device with its free smartphone app, and you can quickly send the results to your doctor or a family member, or just keep it for yourself. No other single device measures all five of these key vital signs. That's why healthcare professionals call it, quote, a truly amazing piece of wellness technology. Purchase yours today by going to Amazon, or for 15% off, go directly to bodymetrics.com, body, B-O-D-I, metrics.com. 
Hi, I'm Barbara Sandbeck, your host on Grace Notes, a 15-minute program that contains biblical teaching and a wide variety of music. Some of the subjects we address are, why do we have trials and cultivating intimacy with God? You can listen right here on WTLN every Sunday at 2.45 p.m. Can't catch the whole broadcast? Visit our podcast on the web 24-7 on WTLN.com. So tune in. You won't want to miss it. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Rod Gregg, our guest in that first half hour, talking about his book, My Brother's Keeper, uh, in Pasadena, California. Well, that's our next guest's home. His name is Brad Griffin, uh, Associate Director of the Fuller Youth Institute, uh, author of the book, called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Baker Books put it out. Uh, wonderful to chat with you, Brad. Oh, it's great to be with you, Pat. By the way, what is the Fuller Youth Institute all about? Yeah, great question. Well, our, our passion is young people and the church, and we want to help the church become the best place for young people to thrive. And we want to equip young people with lifelong faith. So that's what our mission and work is all about. We serve leaders. We serve families, help parents um, understand teenagers and young adults and um, church leaders. Well, let's dive into your book. Uh, what does that title, Growing Young, mean? Great question. You know, Pat, we hear a lot of gloom and doom about the church these days and about young people leaving the church. And... You know, some some of what we hear is true. Um, Church attendance is declining across the U.S. The share of U.S. adults who identify as Christian has dropped, um, you know, by a number of percentage points. Um, Most denominations are not growing. And 18 to 29-year-olds make up nearly 20% of the U.S. population, but only 10% of the church. So it can be easy for us to look around and point fingers or blame or... um, or really just kind of be depressed about the bare spots we see. But we were convinced at the Fuller Youth Institute that there were bright spots, too, and that there were churches really doing great work with young people. So we set out to find them and study them, and we studied churches that were really doing well with 15- to 29-year-olds, high school, college age, and that emerging adult phase. And we found them. We studied over 250 churches. They were amazing and really helped us see some bright spots on this landscape. Um, They weren't growing old, they were growing young. Well, let's dive into the meat of your book, Brad. Uh, We start with uh, the first topic, growing young, what congregations are doing right. Uh, I want to hear about this. Yes, yes. Well, as I said, there's been a lot of finger-pointing, and we can look at what we're doing wrong and, and how we're maybe missing young people and one of the most exciting things that we found is that churches were were really finding ways to engage them, and as they did, the whole church benefited with vitality, with more passion, more innovation, um, and they just were healthier churches. Uh, one leader said to us, "You know, healthy churches reach young people, and young churches young people make churches healthier. Your church is reaching twenty year olds; they're going to reach sixty year olds, and." That was really exciting to us to discover these churches. Um, so some of these churches that are doing things right, they're, they're across the country. We had a lot of geographic diversity. Um, we studied churches from 200 people to over 10,000 people, so they're all sizes. Um, younger churches, some of them were only five years old. Some of them were over 100 years old. So it was exciting to see um, that there was a lot of diversity. There's not one secret to having a church that engages young people well. And I think think folks should be encouraged by that. Topic number two, unlock keychain leadership, sharing power with the right people at the right time. So leadership can really be a buzzword, Pat. And we talked about keychain leadership because we saw a particular kind of leadership at work. Um, Keychain leaders, you know, if you think about the keys that you hold on your keychain, sometimes 
um, you know, those are literal keys, right? But they also represent um, a power and authority. They represent access. And when you think about people who have keys at church, it's not just people with physical keys, but people with keys to um, to really lead and uh, and have access. We found that keychain leaders they know that they know what keys they hold, and they also give them away. They're equipping people, in particular equipping young people, and then giving them those keys when they're ready for them. It's not just about a, a, a dynamic personality. It's not all about control, but it's really about empowerment. And we saw a lot of empowerment and just shared leadership in, in, in these congregations. Now let's move to the next topic. Empathize with today's young people. Why 25 is the new 15, and 15 is the new 25. (laughs) Yeah, you know, one of the phenomenon we see in our society today is that adolescence has really been extending. Um, Today's young adults, they're getting married five or more years later. They're beginning to have uh, children five or more years later than a few decades ago. And there's a lot of other markers that we associate with adulthood that like financial independence or vocational stability, young people are just reaching those later. So we kind of say, you know, 15 is the new, uh, or 25 is the new 15. But then on the other side, you know, young people are are awfully sophisticated and they have access through technology um, and even skills they learn at a young age that that they feel like 25-year-olds at 15. So it's easy for us as adults to look at that you know, scenario and judge them, um, to critique them. What we found in these churches is that people were actually doing the opposite. Rather than judging, they were journeying with. They were actually empathizing that the journey's different now than it was even 10 years ago. And finding ways to to get to deeper understanding and finding that that deeper understanding actually then unlocks those young people to help them really engage in the community and even engage their own journeys well. Now, uh, I want you to, uh, and by the way, our guest is Brad Griffin from Pasadena, California. We're talking about his book, Growing Young. Uh, The next topic, Brad, uh, take Jesus' message seriously. What's young about the good news? That's right. Now, it might seem trite to say Jesus is at the center of of all these churches, Um, that's a beautiful thing. We did find Christ-centered congregations in our study. It was wonderful. And what we found particularly is that um, these churches tend to be talking about and living out Jesus' message in particular ways. For example, uh, Pat, we interviewed a young woman and asked her about the central message of Christianity. And she said, well, by that, do you mean Christianity or do you mean Jesus? Uh, she said, you know, a lot of people misinterpret what Christianity is about, but at our, at our church, we really want to make sure we focus on the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And we found that to be really refreshing. Um, young, young people may be a little bit, um, they may feel like Christianity and some of its trappings are kind of awkward, but Jesus is still really compelling. And these churches are not selling that message short. They're, they're preaching the gospel, they're um, challenging young people with the message of the gospel, and that's really being well-received. Now we move to this topic, uh, Brad. Fuel a warm uh, community, and uh, warm is the new cool, which means what? Well, Pat, sometimes we believe this myth that in order to really, you know, attract or engage young people, we've got to be hip, we need to hire a young pastor with you know, skinny jeans and kind of the right attire in order to reach young people or make them feel welcome. And one of the one of the best surprises in our study, and we, we had a few churches that were pretty cool, they were pretty hip, but overwhelmingly they were warm. We began to say warm is the new cool. Here's one way that, that came out in our research. We were asked a number of questions um, about churches, but in particular, we asked, you know, how would you describe your church to a friend? And, you know, one of the top descriptors that continued to emerge over and over in our research was like family. My church is like family. 
These people are my family. This is my family here. These kind of phrases we heard over and over. And we, when we began to do some statistical analyses and compare word clusters, we found that um, those words we cluster together as warmth, you know, relational connectedness, authenticity, family, that warmth cluster was a, a bigger predictor of health and even spiritual maturity um, than just about anything else. And that to us was so encouraging. You know, you can, you can increase your warmth without budget. Um, you can increase your warmth just by um, valuing relationships, valuing connection, valuing community, and um, creating spaces for that to develop. So that, to us, was really encouraging. Prioritize young people and families everywhere, from rhetoric to reality. Uh, What's all that mean, Brad? Well, you know, we use a lot of rhetoric about the ways we support young people, and sometimes we'll say, you know, well, we've um, we've created a a youth basement. Okay, my church has a youth basement, (laughs) and... You know, sometimes we feel like we've given them a space, we send them down there, as long as, as, long as everything's uh, going okay, then they must know they're prioritized. Or maybe even we hire a youth pastor and feel like that's prioritizing young people. We found a different definition of priority in these congregations, and we almost began to call it an, uh, an inordinate prioritization, or that it was the hinge point in churches. Here's why. You know, it might mean money or budget, it might mean space, but it also means the way that a church thinks about young people across the lifespan of the church. So, for example, with Christmas services coming up, these churches are asking, you know, months ahead of time, how will young people be involved? What role will our young people play in our Christmas services? Um, What will it look like uh, when a 20-something walks in the door or, you know, a, a high schooler or a middle schooler. Um, it also means prioritizing families. Parents are the most important influence on their kids' faith, and research continues to play that out. And, you know, interestingly, that's true through adolescence. So we can best impact young people when we also equip their parents, which means prioritizing discipleship of parents and families as well. Now, some people wonder, you know, if we give young people a bigger piece of the pie, is that going to mean other groups lose out? And I've got to tell you, Pat, we heard over and over again that everyone rises when you focus on young people. It's not just that others miss out when you give young people a bigger piece of the pie, but the whole pie gets bigger. Um, the whole church gets healthier. And we talked to um, senior adults in congregations who said, you know, we, um, we love the young people in our church, they matter to us. And, and we talked to young people in those same churches who said, yeah, we know that the older people, they don't just put up with us, they actually want us here, and we see it and we know it. And that's a prioritization that's, that's different. Brad Griffin is with us from uh, Pasadena, California. Uh, Brad, uh, let's talk about this topic. Be the best neighbors, loving and shaping your world well. Yeah, you know what was so uh, encouraging as we talked with churches were, were stories like the story of Alexis. Alexis is a young person who moved to Washington, D.C., post-college, and she wanted to change the world. She was ready, like so many young people, to take on policy issues and, and global issues. And she had been part of a church, but she wasn't really looking for a church yet in the D.C. area. But she went out one Saturday morning and was walking around and heard a, um, uh, a festival in a local park, so she went over to see what was going on. And Alexa started stopping by these different um, booths set up by people in the community, and she stopped by one on foster care called Foster the City, and they said their goal was to reverse the foster situation in D.C. such that there would be more families who wanted to foster and adopt children than there were children on the wait list. And Alexis was inspired by this. As she started talking to them, she realized that it was a church who was taking on this initiative. It was a church who had actually formed this um, this movement. And that inspired her, so she began, she checked out that church and began worshiping there. And she said, you know, it was the way this church was committed to love its city, to love the neighborhood, 
that inspired me to be part of this congregation. We heard stories like Alexis's over and over again, that, that churches are, are looking for ways to engage, to love their neighbors well locally and globally, and um, that, that young people want to see a church that's alive and active and involved. In- Brad Griffin, our guest, talking about his book, Growing Young. We've got another segment with Brad. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You are listening to the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your host, Dr. Daniel Forbes, and attorney, Delta Chen. Families by Design airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Finances were not designed to bust our marriages, but build our marriages. That's Chris Brown talking about money from a biblical perspective. There's a world's way of handling money that's rooted in entitlement, and there's God's way of handling money that is rooted in contentment and gratitude. Got a money issue you need help with? Listen to Chris Brown's True Stewardship, managing God's blessings God's way for God's glory. Chris Brown's True Stewardship, afternoons at 2, right after Through the Bible. Here at the intersection of faith and reason, the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is a special notice to all U.S. taxpayers. If you owe the IRS or state back taxes and cannot afford to pay them back, there's good news. Due to the financial hardship many are facing in today's economy, the IRS has made it easier to settle delinquent tax problems through a federal program called the Fresh Start Initiative. Qualifying for this program will resolve your tax problem, end all collections, and possibly reduce your back taxes by up to 90%. If you are facing wage garnishments, liens, bank levies, audits, or payroll taxes, it's not not too late. Your circumstances may qualify you for this special program, protecting your savings and your assets. If you owe the IRS or state back taxes and cannot afford to pay them back, there's no need to worry anymore. Call the hotline at Victory Tax Solutions to see if you qualify and potentially save thousands. For this free information, call 800-352-4757. 800-352-4757. That's 800-352-4757. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. My guest is Brad Griffin. We're talking about his new book, Growing Young. Uh, Now, Brad, uh, we get to this topic, Growing Young in Your your Context, uh, How to Create a Plan for Change. Yeah, sometimes churches feel like if they adopt one particular strategy or if they just do one, you know, sort of secret, uh, you know, silver bullet that everything will change. And one thing we really encourage churches to do is to step back and look at their unique context. One of the exciting realities of growing young is that um, it looks different from context to context. We study churches of all sizes in all kinds of communities and with, with all kinds of, of um, uh, you know, socioeconomic and, and ethnic makeups. And we found that they held some characteristics in common, these, these core commitments we've been talking about together this morning. Um, but also, they, um, they really understood their context well. And we found that one of the ways that churches do that is just they're committed to listening, committed to listening to their people, listening in their neighborhood, and listening to um, what people's longings are in the community um, and what what really is going on at their church. Uh, another way is to really look at their church through the eyes of a young person. You know, I, in particular, the, the longer we spend in a place the less we're aware of what's going on there. So, you know, take with fresh eyes, take a walk through your church campus. Think about it from the eyes of a young person, even in the, in the parking lot, um, you know, as they enter in the worship service. 
and um, think about what that actually feels like to young people. And then also, you know, maybe the web presence or social media. So churches can begin by just listening and paying attention in a new way, and from there, uh, forming a strategy. We really encourage to don't have those conversations without young people themselves. Um, we really should include, you know, teenagers and 20-somethings in any sort of planning that we do uh, if we're going to make shifts in our congregation. Last tip on that is just experimenting. We find it so important to experiment um, before making vast programmatic shifts and see what actually works in your context. Brad, what is one practical step uh, that a leader could take this week to help their church grow young? Yeah, I have a step and I have a story. Um, one Good. practical step would be we um, we actually have created a free online assessment at churchesgrowingyoung.com, and that assessment can give you just a thumbnail perspective on which commitments your church maybe is already strong in and which commitments might be the areas to focus on first in, in thinking about um, taking next steps in your congregation. So much of leadership can be about guesswork, so we're trying to help remove the guesswork a bit. So I would encourage a leader to, to take that assessment at churchesgrowingyoung.com. Um, the second would be a story, and it's a story of a gentleman we met named Bill Wallace. Bill was part of a church in Pennsylvania that we visited, and we began to hear his name as we met with young people, and we were just listening to them talk about their church and why they love their church, and inevitably somebody would mention Bill Wallace. So finally we said, well, who's Bill Wallace? We discovered that Bill Wallace is a man in his 70s who took it upon himself to say, no young person at our church should feel uh, alone or unsupported. And so he began getting to know young people, going to their sports games and their um, you know, arts and music events, and he began recruiting other senior adults to do the same thing. So now Bill Wallace is an ambassador in his church for young people, and he inspires others to uh, surround and support the young people in their congregation. Our hunch is that there are people like Bill Wallace all over this country who love their church, they love young people, and they just maybe need some inspiration or maybe even just some permission to inspire others to support the young people in their midst. And we all know those young people need support. They need adults in their lives who are cheering them on. Brad, uh, your team also discovered a few surprising characteristics that churches don't need in order to engage young people. <clears throat> Can you tell us about that? Yeah, for sure. You know, it was an exciting and encouraging some of the things churches don't need. And I, and I mentioned a little bit, you know, that young, hip leader. We, we mm -hmm. found leaders of all ages and <laughs> shapes and sizes, some leaders that were pretty cool and other leaders that were, that were not. And quite honestly, that was pretty encouraging to us that you, you don't need a hip leader. You just, you need an authentic leader. You need uh, a warm leader um, and, and a leader who's willing to practice keychain leadership, as we shared earlier. We also tackled that, those myths of you know, big budget, big buildings. We found that there were churches that had great facilities and also churches with pretty modest facilities, to be honest. And that didn't seem to be what was most important to young people. Um, young people in our interviews didn't talk a lot about their buildings and spaces. They talked way more about the people and that experience of like family that I mentioned earlier. So, you know, those were some of the things we were really encouraged about. Uh, another myth was, you know, you have to water down the gospel in order to sort of attract young people. And we found a, a gospel that was alive and well and thriving in these congregations. And we actually found that one of the things young people appreciated was when um, um, that in teaching the gospel, there was, some, there was some challenge and some sense of this needs to matter in my life. So we thought some of those myths, it was encouraging to debunk those a bit. Um, we don't have to do those things in order to reach young people. We can be who we are as the church, and the more, the more authentic and warm and 
welcoming and the more we're willing to empathize and understand young people and journey with them, um, the more likely they are to feel at home and get involved in our community. Brad, did you find that uh, pastors or young pastors coming out of training, coming out of school, uh, getting their uh, perhaps their doctor's degree and then taking over a church really struggle in this whole area of being a leader? That's a really good question. That was that was not a particular part of this study. I will say that, you know, Fuller Youth Institute is part of Fuller Seminary, mm-hmm. and one of the things that uh, Fuller and other organizations and other seminaries like Fuller are trying to do is really focus in on vocational training, pastoral training in a way that helps um, young leaders respond to the changing needs of churches and the changing needs of ministries. Um, so we didn't study that specifically, but I, I think that's a, a question we're all you know, really wrestling with. Yes. What's next for you, Brad? Is there another project you want to take on? Yeah, great question. You know, we're beginning to um, study innovation in churches, actually, and looking at how um, how we can help churches continue to think about old practices in new ways and um, how we can reach the new generation with faithful practices and the faithful message of the gospel while also uh, recognizing the changing culture. So that's where our, uh, where our energy is going next. Uh, we've got about a minute left, Brad, and I, I just want you to go over one more time this, this thing you call keychain leadership. Uh, I, I just need you to, uh, I just want to be clear again on what that means. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, think about this. Think about a key hoarding leader as somebody who keeps all their um, the power and authority and access close to their chest. They keep those keys locked on their keychain. And a keychain leader is somebody who's willing to take those keys off, to share them, to allow new leaders, and in particular young people, to open doors, um, to have access not only to buildings, but to... Um, to lead, to have voice, to have influence in the church. And not only just perpetuating the systems that we've created as adults, but to allow young people to create new doors and open new doors. We uh, have got a wrap-up after this, folks. Just a reminder, you've been listening to Brad Griffin uh, talking about his new book, Growing Young. Uh, And then we'll wrap it up right after this here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, This is the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Thinking about life insurance? What if you could make one free phone call and learn your best price from nearly a dozen highly rated price competitive companies? Well, that's exactly what happens when you call Select Quote Life. For example, George is 40. He was getting sky-high quotes from other companies because he takes meds to control his blood pressure. But when I shopped around, I found him a 10-year, $500,000 policy for under $28 a month. I'm Select Quote agent Dan Savino, and believe me, If SelectQuote isn't shopping for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. For your free quote, call 1-800-240-1700. That's 1-800-240-1700. 1-800-240-1700. Or go to SelectQuote.com. Since 1985, we shop, you save. Get full details on the example policy at selectquote.com slash commercials. Your price can vary depending on your health, issuing company, and other factors. Not available in all states. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Well, thanks a million, folks, for plugging in here to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Rod Gregg was with us in the first half hour uh, from Coastal Carolina University, where he teaches. We talked about his book, My Brother's Keeper. And then Brad Griffin joined us from Pasadena, California, and we talked about his book called Growing Young. Uh, please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And my latest book is out. It's called Humility. It's really about the power and the impact 
of a humble spirit. And humility is a quality that we can learn. We can teach our young people about the importance of a humble spirit. It was a big deal to God as we read the scriptures. Humility was awfully important to him and to Jesus. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.